welcome to Macintosh and Ma and Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Sabrina. A playboy becomes interested in the daughter of his family's chauffeur, but it's his more serious brother who would be the better man for her. Well, this is a delightful little movie. It is. A little 50s gender role-y. There, there's a little agency issue with this movie, I feel like. Sure. But for its time as a romance, it does a fun little twist on the Cinderella with two men chasing after her storyline. Mm-hmm. Like it's this is just a cute comedy. And for one of the very few times I've ever seen in a movie, like the absolute perfect casting. Pretty close. Yeah. Our main actors were all just about perfectly chosen for their roles Mm -hmm. now whether or not the actors did a great job is another question Mm -hmm. but the way that they all look together the way that they all work together it just everything kind of clicks for this movie sure i do think we have a weak link in the performances but you know everybody's just like appropriately charming and fun now i've seen the remake of this so I knew what the story was, but it was like, okay, so what's different? And it was just as charming. It's just a different charming. It's a different movie. This is a fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, and it's structured and written to be that way. It's just that Billy then takes that fairy tale and throws in a giant heap of cynical humor on top of it. Well, yeah, that's why it's good. That's what he does so well. Yep. And for the first time in this series, I'm going to say Billy's writing lives up to his directing. Yes. You know, we've had a lot of talk about, you know, his writing's had some issues here and there, and the directing is the thing that shines through. But this mm-hmm. movie, especially on the creative end and the crew end, like, is really just well-constructed and well done. Yes. Like, you talk about a well-made movie, this is one of those. Yes, and this is one where I don't feel like it dragged. Like you could tighten a few things up for sure, but it didn't I didn't feel like this is too long. No, it's just it is in a word breezy. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah, it's it's a breezy light comedy with a lot of just very silly bits because of the sort of dark twist he kind of pulls around everything Mm -hmm. and you get some really interesting performances no doubt like we can we'll get into it with the cast but i think everybody's giving something interesting and a little bit different than what we've seen from all of them Hmm. okay which i think is just fun as like as just a person who watches old movies it's just fun to to watch how these this cast specifically works together because it's not a cast on paper that you would put together in a romance like this. Fair. So the budget for this film was $2.2 million. That is roughly $24 million in today's money. Okay. This is a grand movie with a very small story. Yes. It's a very intimate story, but my God, they, they blew the budget for several reasons. Okay. It did well, though. It made $4 million in gross. That's $44 million. It's not like a runaway smash like his other movies, mm-hmm. but it, it doubled its money. But um, you can tell visually there's a lot going on. And part of it is just like, 
these are rich people. We're going to make them look rich. Oh, and they did. Oh my gosh, did they ever. And I'm not even talking about the more iconic things from this movie, mm-hmm. which when we when we get to a certain actress, we will discuss that portion of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even more so, it's just the set design, the way they put it all together, the way they really were like, these people aren't just wealthy. They're like titans of industry wealthy. Well, it's like what the opening monologues or narration says. It wasn't a castle, but it could have been. Once upon a time, on the north shore of Long Island, some 30 miles from New York, there lived a small girl on a large estate. The estate was very large indeed and had many servants. There were gardeners to take care of the gardens and a tree surgeon on a retainer. There was a boatman to take care of the boats, to put them in the water in the spring and scrape their bottoms in the winter. There were specialists to take care of the grounds, the outdoor tennis court and the indoor tennis court, the outdoor swimming pool and the indoor swimming pool. And there was a man of no particular title who took care of a small pool in the garden for a goldfish named George. So let's get into our writing. Mm-hmm. We have, first of all, Samuel A. Taylor, who wrote the play of this. Oh, okay. This is a play before it ever hit movie screens. It was called Sabrina Fair. Oh, okay. They thought that title might have been better, but they wound up changing it because they were worried that audiences would confuse it with something highbrow or period like Vanity Fair. Okay. And I and I like that. I like that they went, we want you to maybe get a hint that this is kind of fairy tale-ish. And then when you come in, you're like, oh, no, this is just a fun comedy. Well, this is a romantic comedy. Yes, very much. Taylor also contributed to the screenplay for the film. Despite this being probably his biggest thing that he ever wrote, he also wrote Vertigo, The Pleasure of His Company, and Topaz, one of Hitchcock's later films. Oh, okay. Cool. Then we've got Billy, of course. He's writing stuff all over the place. <laughs> and then we have Ernest Lehman, a gentleman we have talked about before. Okay. Before this, he wrote the film Executive Suite, but after this, he wrote The King and I, Somebody Up There Likes Me, Sweet Smell of Success, North by Northwest, West Side Story, The Prize, The Sound of Music, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Hello Dolly, Portnoy's Complaint, Family Plot, and Black Sunday. I am familiar with a few of those. Three times he's already been on the show. This is his fourth film. Oh, all right. Good for him. That we've brought up here. What do we think of the writing of this movie? It's great. It has lovely plots. The conceit is totally plausible and reasonable, too. It doesn't, like, it gets into the fantasy and that it's what she has dreamed up is going to happen. And then they subvert it with some comedy or just like the letdown of the reality of what's happening. And it's great. I, I do agree. You said earlier, you know, we get into some agency issues. But at the same time, ultimately, both men want Sabrina to be okay. Like when yeah. when it comes down to it at the end, they want to do what's right for Sabrina. And and both are like, if that means it's not me, it's not me. But we we have to do make sure she's okay. And that is lovely. There is a version of the script where she doesn't end up with either one of them. She just goes back to Paris where she found herself. And she's happy. 
I think the comedy sometimes overshadows the more interesting character points of the film. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're they're trying to play a, a set point, and they're also moving very quickly through this mm-hmm. story. I mean, where what I do think is they they give the moments that need to breathe a lot of good time to breathe. Yeah, but we do miss like the occasional. Hold on, we could go talk a lot more about this one thing, but you've breezed past it to, I don't know, shoot a gun at a piece of plastic, which is incredibly funny, but also weird. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. We make some hard right turns, and despite that, I think that's more of a factor of this movie being made in 1953 and 54 Yeah, than it being something that's bad about the writing. After a while, I finally got engaged in, oh, it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale told with a cynical worldview, but it's still a fairy tale. And once you kind of ease into that a little bit, it really works for what it is. Yeah. Hmm. I kind of feel like it's Linus is definitely Billy's counterpart here because I feel like so much of it has his flavor because of what a curmudgeon he is (laughs) and not that billy is a curmudgeon but that's what he leans towards yeah and and it's also like that character is a contemporary to him in age sure and exactly that's like yeah and linus and david are of a different generation Mm -hmm. they see the world in a different way david's got a different view of how all of the world works yeah but I think it's a testament to how good he is and the fact that he's collaborating with really good people that they can bring both perspectives and both perspectives get equal time and neither feels wrong. Like, I don't fault any character really other than dad <laughs> who is written to be a dipshit. Like, let's be real. The parents are are just there to comment on the cultural time of of what's happening like and and the class issue that's going on throughout this whole story but for our main characters everybody gets a chance to have their say and every single one of them feels real and honest to who they are and at the end of the day that's what matters (laughs) now it is unclear who got the movie made whether it was billy wilder Mm -hmm. or one of our stars audrey hepburn okay there are some sources that will contend that Audrey read the play before Paramount got involved, and while she was working on Roman Holiday, which was her breakout film, convinced the studio to buy the film for her to star in. Mm-hmm. By the way, I should mention, Audrey's 24 in this movie. Okay. She's that young, and she's already a powerhouse. Well, yeah. But there are other sources that state Billy Wilder found the play, and because he had the attachment to Paramount, he would buy it as a vehicle for his own to make. Mm-hmm. We don't know who, but it is just an interesting note of, out of all of these guys, Audrey Hepburn might have been the one to get this movie made. Okay. Now, like Sunset Boulevard, the film started production without a finished script. Wilder was continuously working to perfect while filming, and at one point, he asked Audrey Hepburn to feign illness so he could go hide and finish the scene they were trying to shoot that day. (laughs) The man does not like to work with a deadline, clearly. No. That and he really likes to he clearly likes to make adjustments when he starts working with the actors Mm -hmm. and he's writing it. So he gets to do that. Now, Lehman didn't work for Paramount. He worked for MGM. Mm -hmm. But 
Wilder convinced them to hire him on loan from that studio to help finish the script. Lehman was the workhorse. Okay. He worked tirelessly during filming. He pushed himself so hard that he suffered a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. There was one scene that they had to shoot that afternoon. It took over 72 takes. He wrote it during his lunch break. Wow. He was overworking way too hard. Yeah. And to note the frustration of the writing staff on the set, at one point, Lehman did not have an extra copy of a scene rewrite for other star Humphrey Bogart, and Bogart lost his shit on Lehman. Wilder stopped everything on set and told everyone, including the crew, he would not shoot another foot of film until Bogart apologized to Lehman. Good for him. Humphrey Bogart calmed down, invited Lehman to his dressing room, and after they got out, the shooting continued. So clearly he apologized. They let it be. They got back to work. Um, No, when you commit the offense in public, you have to do the apology in public. Uh-uh. No, fuck you, Bogart. But good for you on Billy to be like, uh-uh, you ain't doing this shit. We have one other title that could have been better. Hmm, okay. Paramount, deciding to be as literal as possible, thought about changing the name of the film to The Chauffeur's Daughter. Oh, no. (laughs) That is the ultimate studio note bullshit. That's, we don't want to write a description for what the movie's about, so we're just going to title it that. Why? Why? No. No, thank you. Studio executives just... They they quite often make the dumbest decisions. There are rarely notes that I think make something better. It doesn't mean they can't, but the studio isn't always the smartest. There, there are people in the studios that are incredibly smart like that, but guess what? They're producers. Yeah. They step out from that studio role and produce. <laughs> so Paramount, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Paramount... This would be this would be Billy's last film directing for Paramount. Oh, okay. So this was the end of the Paramount era. We talked about there were a couple of reasons why he may have already wanted to leave during Stalag 17, but this would be his final commitment. So for that final part of an era, what do we think of Billy's directing of this film? Oh, it's it's lovely. The man doesn't miss with his directing style, does he? It's just, I know there are a couple of moments he could have let land and and sit longer, but, you know, it's just pretty, and you just, I mean, even though I think Bogart is the weak link and a curmudgeon in this film, which, you know, is his way, he just, he made you like him. Like, I think all of those physical things that are in the script and that they focused on were to make you understand Linus. Oh, yeah. In a way that you might not because he's so stern and strict. And without seeing him, you know, do all those demonstrations with the glass and being silly and the plastic and, you know, even the the hammock that he has the hole cut out. Like, this is what he does. This is what he's good at. But he, he does have a playful side. It just comes out differently. Well, and it comes out through sabrina she lets it sit longer and she notices it i i think it's one of those things that other people just write it off as oh well yeah he's working that's his work but sabrina sees it as this is the way he plays this is fun for him this is his passion 
it just looks different than, you know, being passionate about art or music. It's it's the same thing. And then you just you go back and you go, okay, we have had a film noir. Mm -hmm. We have had a Hollywood biopic fantasy type thing. Sunset Boulevard's hard to describe. Let's put it that way. Um, But it's it's a Hollywood movie and a war movie. Now you've got a straight up romantic comedy. It's a romantic comedy. Definitely one of the first. And every single one of those, his directing style has fit perfectly like a glove. Yeah. I, it's just like every single time the man doesn't miss in his directing. The script might have its issues, but his directing is just always top notch. And this movie especially, he, what I love is he goes beyond the romantic comedy part of it mm-hmm. to really play up the grandness of the setting mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't just dwarf Sabrina. It dwarfs everyone. Oh, sure. Which just humanizes them that much more. Yeah. There's so much iconography around all of these people so that when you get into what is a very petty squabble between all of them, mm-hmm. you go, oh, it just it just adds straight to it. And so, it, you know, despite all of the different stuff going on and the ballooning budget that wasn't really his fault, mm-hmm. it works so well because he's a master of just going, all right, well, I got to do this scene. We got to get this shot. Let's do it this way because it's going to look perfect. He yeah. just has it. He just isn't married to a particular style because he's focusing on how do I tell this story? Yeah, absolutely. And I am having trouble thinking of someone today who is that talented. We do need a lot more directors who look up to Billy Wilder and a lot less who look up to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, yeah, we need to stop with Stanley Kubrick because it's a gimmick. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not to say that there are people who haven't been inspired by him that don't make sure. beautiful work. Of course. But my my thinking is that instead of people who are inspired by Billy Wilder are inspired by either particularly his writing or it has to do with a particular type of his movies, as opposed to the fact that he did so many different kinds. I mean, that's, I mean, we're four movies in and each one has been wildly different, but also very successful. It's just being a master storyteller in the sense that not only can you write a really solid story, mm-hmm. but you also have a, you also have an incredibly clear visual story that you want to tell you know i i only one name is coming to mind as a contemporary that i feel is capable of that ryan johnson yeah that's a good that's a good comp he directs what he writes he's written a lot of different things he's directed a lot of different things all fucking gorgeous yeah yeah every single one Mm mm-hmm All right. Well, one other little note. The scene where David forces Linus to reveal his love for Sabrina had to be shot before Wilder and Lehman decided whether Linus ended up with Sabrina. Okay. He he just had to shoot it regardless of what they did because William Holden had to leave the set for another role. So they shot it just in case. That's how the story panned out. That's fair. (laughs) I can understand because it's like, well, do you want her to have her her fair what's her fairy tale 
what she's always wanted or who's the right person for her. And they were writing it as they went. <laughs> yeah. So I understand, like, you know, we need to cover our bases. It's fair. It's fair. I don't know how this man made so many great movies while basically writing on the fly. Mm -hmm. Incredible shit. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Ernest Lehman, who had to have a nervous breakdown over it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about our cast. And we start with the man who was the biggest star at the time in this movie. Sure. It's Humphrey Bogart playing Linus Larrabee. He is a true icon of cinema. He's been in so many great things. Before this, he was in The Petrified Forest, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Oklahoma Kid, The Roaring Twenties, High Sierra, The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, Tokyo Joe, In a Lonely Place, The African Queen, Beat the Devil, and The Cane Mutiny. After this, he was in The Barefoot Contessa, not The Cooking Show, mm -hmm. We're No Angels, The Desperate Hours, and The Harder They Fall. Mm. What do we think of Humphrey Bogart in this movie? Bracing for impact. <laughs> his, his performance is the weak link among the three because it is very hard to see him express any level of joy. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know much about Humphrey Bogart as a person. I just can't imagine he is somebody who is, you know, laughing it up all the like. I just don't. I think he's a curmudgeonly human because that seems to be what I see him in. And so I there weren't a lot of levels to him in this film. And we needed a few more. He I mean, he does have levels. The problem is, is those levels typically fall within a very specific range. Sure. Like, I've seen him in, in several different things, including I put the Petrified Forest on here because that's a really great, like, early role of his where mm -hmm. it's, it's really fascinating. He's like the wild manic bad guy and he's really good. Mm -hmm. But like Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, he's playing a very specific role. Sure. He's playing the Raymond Chandler stereotype. Mm -hmm. He was the original Philip Marlowe. Yeah. He was just that guy. But... He, you know, he he's in some other things where he has a lot of levels where he does it. But in all of those cases, something like Casablanca, something like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, even the African Queen, where I know he's a little more cynical. Jungle Cruise has a, owes a lot to the African Queen. Sure. Yeah. In terms of the humor mixed with the the adventure. And, mm -hmm. and that's not to compare those movies because the African Queen's like a legendary movie. <laughs> sure. But. In all of those cases, he had a script. I think his problem is he's incredibly uncomfortable. It's fair. And there's some trivia here about other reasons why he didn't like this. But I think when it really comes down to it, we talk about like him getting pissed off about not having the scenery right. Sure. I think he was an actor who needed to know the whole story mm -hmm. so that he could put it all together. Okay. And he didn't have it for this movie. Sure. And on top of that, you are putting him in a comedy where he's got to be romantic, which is not his thing. So he's already out of his comfort zone, mm. and the script's not done, and you're just like, I think he's incredibly uncomfortable, and because he's kind of an asshole, he takes it out on everybody. Yeah, I mean, th those are all fair points, and like could definitely be contributing factors. But like I said, I feel like we needed a few more notes from him, and we didn't get them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That doesn't change that his performance doesn't match the levels of his co-stars. Mm -hmm. but it's interesting because the rest of his resume is so strong sure. to figure out what was the reason for this. 
-hmm. And that's just my conjecture with what we've got here. Now, I'm going to do who could have been better up front because it plays into why he had a really hard time making this movie. Cary Grant was the original choice for this role. Oh, okay. And oh my God, what a man who could play levels. Oh, you know, you want him to be charming. He can be charming. But he can also get dead serious and be, you know, a little bit cruel if you need him to. Oh, absolutely. He may son of a bitch, but he can also be charming as fuck. Cary Grant apparently rejected the part because he did not want to carry an umbrella on screen. What? We did this before. Like, Cary made up some excuse and it turned out it was because of, like, some money thing. Like, he came up with all sorts of bullshit excuses for not being in stuff. That's so dumb. But if that is the reason, fuck you, Carrie. Like, really? Fuck off. I just don't want to make this movie. I'd have more respect for him if he said that. Yeah, no, agreed. Completely agree. So Billy tried to pull some Billy Wilder magic here, right? He went for somebody who's against type, Mm -hmm. but he thinks is perfect for the role. Okay. And he's not wrong. Like, I will give him that. On paper and visually, Humphrey Bogart is a great choice for Linus Larrabee. Sure. So long as he can pull the character off, the look is top-notch perfect from a directing and casting point of view. No, I I totally agree. But Bogey thought he was totally wrong for the role. Okay. He was pissed about not being the first choice for the role, Mm. which he's a big star. He's got an ego. That's, That's his choice. And he hated both William Holden and Billy Wilder. Oh. Well, yeah, that would make it not great. On set, he resorted to cu- nicknaming William Holden Smiling Jim. Mm-hmm. Humphrey also didn't like Audrey in the role. He didn't think she had a lot of experience. Asked about working with her. Bogey said, well, it's okay if you don't mind to make a dozen takes. Because mm-hmm. he thought she could never remember her lines. Oh, mm-hmm. Bogey. The man just seemed like a total grumpy drunken asshole. Yeah, like, I mean, it's just... Everything I've ever heard about him, it was just like... He was so just Difficult. grumpy and meh and drunk and just not fun to be around, mm. which sucks because he was a really good actor. Don't be a dick. No. At the time, many, many people thought Bogey was miscast. Mm-hmm. They thought Holden should have played Linus okay. and then get a younger actor to play David Larrabee. I mean, that makes total sense because... You know, honestly, a lot of what I've seen of William Holden is him being a grouch. Yeah, well, and he was already in his kind of mid to late 30s at this point. Sure, which is Hollywood old at the time. Yeah, well, and especially because you have Audrey Hepburn, who is 23, 24. Sure, yeah. It would work. It would yeah, work fine. If you if you got a dude in his late 20s. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been fine. But in retrospect, many, many critics have come around to say, no, this is actually a really interesting performance from Bogey. And I agree with that. I don't think it's one of his best roles. I Mm -hmm. do think it's fascinating because it is something very different for him. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not like there aren't moments where it works really, really well. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is really cool. Again, a lot of that because of Billy, because Billy's so good that he can make even a slightly weak link work on screen. You know, when you just walked in here, I was sure you'd been sent by the family to deal with me. To deal with you? Like in a Viennese operetta. The young prince falls in love with the waitress at the Ratskala, and the prime minister is sent to buy her off. Buy her off? Yes. He offers her 5,000 kronen. No, she says. 
10,000? No. 15,000 kronen? No. 25,000 kronen? No. $25,000? No. How did dollars get into this? $25,000 after taxes. That's a lot of money, Sabrina. What are you trying to say? Well, I'm just trying to make it worthwhile. What's a kroner these days? No self-respecting prime minister would offer kronen. No self-respecting waitress would take dollars. Good girl. Well, and I, I think that is the credit to the charm of his two co-stars. Yeah. I mean, truly. Man, yeah. I just... <sighs> well, let's talk about some actors that we do really love. And we're going to start with Audrey Hepburn as mm. Sabrina Fairchild. Ah. We have talked about her before. Before this, she was in The Lavender Hill Mob and Roman Holiday. After this, she was in War and Peace, Funny Face, Love in the Afternoon, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Children's Hour, Charade, My Fair Lady, How to Steal a Million, Two for the Road, Wait Until Dark, and Robin and Marion. Mm. What do we think of Audrey Hepburn in this movie? She's just adorable. Oh my God. Like the overwrought dramatic child that she is at the beginning is hilarious. That moment where she writes that note is the best. Like Dave and I were howling at that. I don't want to go to Paris. I, I want to die. Like, <laughs> I know there's a level of that being horrifying. But it's also just like, you're being ridiculous. This is hilarious. And it and it's totally meant to be funny in that moment. Yes. Like, the whole point is, everybody knows Audrey is Little Miss Princess. Yeah. And so now they've put her in here. And it's like, look at Little Miss Princess being miserable. Mm-hmm. Because she can't get the boy she wants. Yeah, everyone knows that she's in love with him. And that he does not see her in any way, shape, or form. Come on. Like, you're being sent away so you can get over this. And what I love about this is, so the only other thing we've watched of her for the show is Funny Face, mm -hmm. where she's doing a lot of the same things, but it doesn't work at all because of the movie. Yeah, the movie's awful. She's not bad. No. But the movie's terrible, so just none of it makes any sense. She's in the wrong movie. Yeah, but here, all of it works perfectly. Mm -hmm. Everything she does makes sense for who she is as a character. And then you can see just that gleam in Audrey's eyes of like, I'm having so much fun doing this. When she's in that car with William Holden. Oh, yeah. And they're doing the whole, where do I know you from? Are you uh, sure you don't want to tell me your name? Positive. I'm having much too much fun. It's not just Sabrina that's having fun. You can tell Audrey's loving every minute of this oh yeah because she's playing a joke it's just it's just a good time it's outstanding and she's gorgeous for a lot of reasons but i think it's you always think of audrey hepburn and it's always the look and in this movie you see all of the substance behind the look sure which you i don't know that you always get that from her as an actress mm -hmm. again i'm not saying that's always her fault but this is one of the times where you're like, yes, she had all of the acting chops to back up the iconic looks she served. Mm -hmm. That's why she endured. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is, you know, really like her third movie in of any note. So ah, incredible stuff. Uh, this was her second film in a row where she cut her hair to show her maturity. Mm -hmm. And one of four films in a row 
that had a romance with a man old enough to be her father. Yep. Wow. Wow. They had her pegged for a very specific choice for a while. Mm-hmm. At the time, Audrey Hepburn was 24, William Holden was 35, and Humphrey Bogart was 53. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Don't love that. Again, if William Holden was Linus, yeah. and somebody in their mid to late 20s is playing the other role, this movie works pretty well. Yeah. So. I mean, it works pretty well here. <sighs> it's just like, um, that's kind of gross. I know. I know. Who could have been better? Bogart. Another reason why he was a bit grumpy about this. Bogart wanted his wife, Lauren Bacall, to play Sabrina. No. Lauren Bacall's amazing. She's great. Incredible actress. No. She doesn't have that bright-eyed, innocent thing that Audrey did. She never did. Lauren Bacall's, like, the ultimate goddess starlet. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a different thing. Ugh, whatever. All right. Let's move on to our last main role, William Holden, three in a row, playing David Larrabee. What do we think of William Holden in this movie? He is adorable. You can tell he is having so much fucking fun. (laughs) Like, they blonded him up, which is a little bit weird, but you can tell he's just, he's just having a ball. Like, it's not, he doesn't have to be serious. He gets to be the jokester, and he's good at it. He's glowing. I think they gave him like a spray tan or something, because he looks like he's glistening. Well, it could be that, but it's also, it's definitely whatever shade of blonde they gave him. It's very, (laughs) it's probably very yellow in person. Just a, a boy who's too dumb to know what's going on, but knows that he loves, (laughs) loves this woman, he thinks, Mm -hmm. and then he doesn't know what he thinks at all. Yeah. Mostly because he doesn't think. Of course not. He's a great himbo. <laughs> he yes. is. He is. And he's having the time of his life. Now, what may be contributing to that glow is also that William Holden and Audrey Hepburn fell deeply, deeply in love while making <gasps> this movie. What? Yes. Okay, well, that adds to her fun being cheeky in the car as well. Mm. They almost, like, fully went after it. But she broke off the affair when she learned Holden could not have children. Was he still married during this? I don't know. Okay, because he was married in our last films. Yes. Okay. I have a feeling that ended. Sure. I gotta. I I hadn't looked it up, but I have a feeling it ended here. But they were like they were very close to being full Hollywood couple married together. But she had to break it off because she wanted a family. And she did have one later. I mean, she she did a handful of films, lots of very famous films. Yeah. But she retired, and she specifically retired to raise a family. Yeah. No. I mean, no shade. I mean, hey. No. You gotta you gotta go after the relationship where you both want the same things. Yep. Now, before we get to Arpons, you want some good sexism in movie making? Always. Let's talk about the salaries. Well, that's not going to be good. Humphrey Bogart got paid $300,000 for this movie. That's $3.3 million. Okay. That's reasonable. I think that's fair, right? And today, eh, maybe. He's a huge star. Whatever, I don't care. William Holden got paid $150,000 for this movie, about $1.65 million. Okay, that feels comparable. Feels like a good chunk of change. Audrey Hepburn got paid $15,000 for this movie. $165,000. That's some bullshit. What the fuck? Now, she was the greenest person 
of of the top build so i'm i don't really have a problem with her making less than the other two that i think that's fair but hers because of the size of her role it should have been comparable to william's salary give the woman a million at least yeah if he got 150 give her 100 because i i do get it like i you know there there's a, there's a resume issue but sure. you got paid 10 times less than your male co-star that's never okay than your male supporting co-star yeah she's dad. she is the actual lead yes she is the namesake of the film yes and you know i i, I don't want to discredit the fact that the other names bring people to the theater and there's something to that but it shouldn't be that far out of proportion no we'll say there is a note later that maybe maybe it got adjusted somewhere down the line Hmm. for a specific reason but before we do that we're gonna get to our puns random people of note we first have walter hampton as oliver larrabee he was in the hunchback of notre dame and all about eve he was a stage legend he played hamlet three different times after world war one and made his TV debut in 1949 at the age of 69, playing Macbeth. Oh, And he's playing a goofy, drunk dad. Yeah. Awesome. John Williams, not that John Williams, playing Thomas Fairchild, the chauffeur. Mm -hmm. He had a big role in Dial M for Murder, and we'll see him again in Witness for the Prosecution. Okay, cool. Francis X. Bushman, playing Mr. Tyson. He was a silent film star at the height of his popularity in World War I, was the original king of the movies until Clark Gable was given that title. Mm-hmm. Ellen Corby playing Miss McArdle. She was Esther Walton on The Waltons. Oh, okay. Raymond Bailey playing a member of the board. He was Milburn Drysdale on The Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Marjorie Benedict playing Margaret the Cook. She was Miss Lark, the old woman in the park in Mary Poppins, and the voice of Duchess, one of the cows, in 101 Dalmatians. Okay. George Brueggemann, playing a party guest, he wore the cowardly lion suit to run through a glass window when he runs scared from the Wizard of Oz. Oh. He was like a Hollywood stuntman guy. That's cool. Nancy Culp, playing Jenny the Maid, she was Jane Hathaway on The Beverly Hillbillies and starred in the original The Parent Trap. Foster H. Finney, playing a party guest. He didn't have a real career in movies, but he was Kirk Douglas's regular stand-in in the 50s and then moved into assistant directing. And because he regularly worked as an assistant director on the Beverly Hillbillies, there was a character named after him. No, that's cool. Marion Ross, playing Spiller's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. This is Marion Cunningham from Happy Days. Yep, like you said Marion Ross. I was like, I know who Marion Ross is. And Gran on Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's just randomly here. Oh, and Cousin Tilly. Aunt Tilly. And we have Norman Stevens playing a party guest. Uh, he's been mentioned randomly before. He helped found and became the original president of the Screen Extras Guild. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anytime we talk about old movies, his name pops up. Mm. because he was a long time extra but he got the rights for the extras so solidarity good job man all right we move on to awards this movie was nominated for six academy awards Mm, okay it won best black and white costume design for the immortal edith head oh very cool although we will get to there might have been a co-star here Mm. with this costume design 
Oh, yeah, I know. I know who it is. Now, nominated for the other five awards, it lost all of them. Mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn was nominated for Best Actress. Nice. She lost to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. This was also the year Judy Garland was nominated for A Star is Born. Ah, yeah. Mm, yes. And Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones, which was a big deal. Black mm-hmm. actress getting a nomination. Oh, yeah. Best Director. Billy lost to Elia Kazan for On the Waterfront. Mm. I can't argue with that. That's a great movie mm. and changed movies. Alfred Hitchcock also nominated for Rear Window that year. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a big year. Yeah. It lost Best Writing for Screenplay to The Country Girl. Rear Window, The Cane Mutiny, and Oh My God, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was nominated for Best Writing. Wow. <laughs> And then it lost both Best Black and White Cinematography and Art Set Decoration to On the Waterfront. Mm-hmm. Again, I get that. That movie was so realistic. Sure. It was. This movie's gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. On the Waterfront was one of those movies that changed how everybody made movies. Yeah. So unfortunately, Billy kind of just got the second fiddle here. Yeah. But, I mean, technically, what a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cinematography and the sets are just They're what great. the fuck. All right. Trivia. Trivia. While Edith had served as main costume designer and was credited as costume designer, mm-hmm. she worked alongside the uncredited Hubert de Givenchy, who began his design association with Audrey Hepburn throughout their time together for this film. Hepburn originally wanted Cristobal Balenciaga, but he turned her down, so she turned to his protege. Mm-hmm. Now, a modern source claims that Billy Wilder's wife, Audrey, not Audrey Hepburn, but he was married to his own Audrey, mm-hmm. actually discovered Givenchy on a Paris shopping spree and brought it to Wilder instead. Mm. Uh, Hollywood stuff, who knows? It, it could have been both. It could have been both. But regardless, this was going to be an association that Audrey mm-hmm. Hepburn had throughout her film career. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, he remains uncredited, but it was widely thought that Academy voters were likely including his designs into the decision to give this award to Edith Head. I, I don't think that's unfair. Now, Edith Head stated in a 1974 interview that she was responsible for creating the dresses based on designs of Givenchy that Hepburn liked. Okay. So she took the designs. She reworked them, and she claimed the dresses were not completely designed by Givenchy. Okay. Givenchy never disputed this while Edith Head was alive. Okay. After her death, he stated that Sabrina's black cocktail dress Mm. was produced at Paramount under her supervision, but with his design. That was the only one he ever contested. Well, that would be the one to contest. That's the (laughs) one that has lived on as the iconic little black dress uh yes it became a massive success its high neckline was named the sabrina neckline yes i knew about that i mean that <laughs> that would be the one to be like i designed that one i mean you know it's entirely likely that that was the one he designed sure and you know she you know she could have easily as the designer been like no we're not going with anything Givenchy. i don't care if you like them i don't that's not what we're gonna put in the movie she liked them enough or thought they worked for the character and they do oh it's a yes. french God. designer you have to go with a french designer 
And, you know, an up and comer is going to make bigger waves than Balenciaga. I mean, come on. Um, Yeah, I'm fine with all that. Between both her early uniform, Mm -hmm. which is just as gorgeous. Yeah. And then the dress she walks down to in the party Mm -hmm. is one of the most beautiful things. Yeah. And you're just like, fuck. I think the most likely scenario here is Givenchy was not interested in the Oscar part of it. Sure. He knew the dresses would sell because they were in the fucking movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that they collaborated. And that's probably how it worked out. They directly collaborated together. I really like that he he didn't want to cause a fuss while Edith Head was alive and just say, this was her moment. This was her Oscar. Mm-hmm. But I, I designed that one, okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, let me have mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. The huge price tags for all of the costumes were actually put on Audrey Hepburn. There's where I go that that salary might, that's where the difference might have come from. Mm-hmm. Paramount insisted that because they were so expensive, she had to pay for them herself. Mm-hmm. And she had the money, let's be very clear. Sure. <laughs> Funny enough, before any of this, Givenchy did not know who Audrey Hepburn was. Really? When they approached him, he thought he would be designing for Catherine Hepburn. Roman Holiday had like just come out when they started filming this. Mm-hmm. She was not like the ultra movie star. She was gonna be very quickly. Mm-hmm. But like... I'm sure that hadn't gotten over to France just yet. Yeah. So I'm sure he was like, Hepburn? Oh, I'll work for Catherine. Wait, who? (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, if you're going to pay me. In a strange turn, the name of the film in the UK was changed back to Sabrina Fair. This is because at the time, a TV personality named Sabrina, played by an actress named Norma Sykes, became an icon on a television talk show. The host of that talk show was just over five feet tall, and Sykes was much taller and bustier. Hmm. She never spoke nine. She just stood next to the very small host. Okay. It was a full comedy bit. The film distributors thought the momentary stardom of Sabrina would mislead audiences as to what movie they would be seeing. Interesting. Hmm. When Linus takes Sabrina to the theater, they see the play, The Seven Year Itch, (laughs) which would be Wilder's next film project. Oh, okay. The name of the tugboat headed to Paris is the Maud Larrabee, the name of the family matriarch. That's very funny. And in the opening credits, the full moon perfectly dots the eye in Sabrina. No. And that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, indestructible sheets of plastic. Umbrellas. Plastic butt hammocks. Umbrellas. (laughs) I had to get that one in there. God, what a... What a ridiculous bit. Mm -hmm. This is kind of your movie? I was familiar with this story, so I'm fine with it being my movie. How many umbrellas are you going to give it? 4.5. Okay. Uh, It's a a dig. It's it's down a half point because Humphrey is a (laughs) doo-doo. That's a perfectly good reason. Yeah, I'll go four and a half. It's not just... It's partly Humphrey, and it's partly just little bits and pieces here that... I think are a factor of when it was made more than anything and Mm -hmm. who it was made for. And I wish we could spend some more time with, but it's still so good. Mm -hmm. It's still just a really good grown up fairy tale. Yeah. And you mentioned that you were already familiar with this story. I was. Well, you know what that means for this show, right? Yeah. We love, we, we like to be completionists and we love to compare and contrast. Contrast. So we have to go watch the other one. 
Yes. Yes, we do. So let's go do that. Okay. All right. We watched, we watched the newer one. An ugly duckling, having undergone a remarkable change, still harbors feelings for her crush, a carefree playboy, but not before his business-focused brother has something to say about it. First of all, ugly duckling, what the fuck? Yeah. Julia Armand is a gorgeous woman. Yeah. That description makes no sense. Yeah. And it's likely indicative of the studio torpedoing a movie that it didn't understand. Mm, Maybe, yeah. Uh, Regardless, I don't think we have to go into like too deep of anything other than comparing and contrasting because mm-hmm. this movie is pretty much the same. It's very similar. Um, they made they made some good updates that I think were definitely were definitely more nineties, and that's totally fine and yes. makes complete sense. Um, but I was watching it, and I was like, okay, and like the opening monologue's almost the same. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, on the north shore of Long Island, not far from New York. There was a very, very large mansion, almost a castle, where there lived a family by the name of Larrabee. There were servants inside the mansion and servants outside the mansion, boatmen to tend the boats, and six crews of gardeners, two for the solarium, the rest for the grounds. And a tree surgeon on retainer. It's got the same charm. And they cast it perfectly. The one thing I was super, super concerned about from watch that I loved from what I, I keep mentally calling it the original one because it's the first one I saw from the modern one was when David puts the glasses in his back pocket. Like I always thought that was such a specific thing and so funny and just a funny way for him to injure his butt. Uh, I was like, oh man, I wonder if that's from the original. Man, I hope it's something just as good. And to find out that it's the exact same thing brought me so much joy. So much joy. I think this one doesn't have the same type of physical visual gags, but it has a lot more verbal jokes that I think work in its place. It's very interesting. They're very tonally different. The stories are incredibly similar. Yes. But the tone of the two movies is different in that the original is very fantastical and a little fairy tale Mm -hmm. in how it's being presented. Sure. This one is much more grounded and character driven. Sure. And I love both of them. (laughs) I, I do too. I think one of the other things that's really cool about the modern one is that all of the background characters are full people yes, and they're written that way and they're presented that way. I love the mother. Maud Larrabee is fabulous because she's hilarious mm-hmm. and she doesn't have a spouse and she's the one who is the, the, the smart, rich, you know, powerhouse lady, which is great. But then there's also this element of, I feel the modern one, while it's about Sabrina, it's really about Linus. I feel like the focus is more on Linus's interaction in the into this story. And that feels a little weird, but I think that makes this one work on a different level that is so fun. They did a great job of deciding, you know what? 
let's make this movie about the characters uh-huh. instead of the plot because you don't want to make the same thing over again. No, well, I I think it's it's I I don't think it's fair to say it's not about the plot because the plot is solid and great and it's the same plot. Right. What they did was they wrote it and presented it in a way that you could understand that these characters are evolving. Are three. Yeah. They are going to evolve through this story. Maybe not in the way you expect, but they're gonna evolve. They're gonna change. And all three of them do change by the end of the story. I mean, yes, they change in the other one too, I feel like, but it's not as explored. It's not as explored and it's not, you don't see the conflict so no. much with between with each one of them. In this film, each of the three you can see because we talk about it the internal conflict they're having with the situation and what they're discovering about themselves well we talked about we wanted those moments to breathe this movie lets those moments breathe <laughs> lets them breathe it lets the jokes breathe it lets the yeah. romantic pieces lead it's it's great i mean yeah. this merger wait, wait a minute advantage. linus you're talking about my life i pay for your life david my life makes your life possible i resent that so do i it's just it's so funny and i mean it's really good it's cheeky it's so good i love this movie this movie i cannot remember if i saw this in the theater or not but it is one that me and my mother watched several times and let me tell you i quoted this movie to my mom so many times (laughs) more isn't always better Sometimes it's just more. My mother didn't love it when I said that because it was usually about too many decorating pieces in the house. <laughs> or And sometimes she'd say it to me when I'd be like, I need all the candy. No, Diana, some, more isn't always better. Sometimes it's just more. <laughs> but yeah, that that came from this movie. And this was a fall asleep movie for me for a while. So I know it very well. It's just good. It's just it's really just good. just good. And I love it when I get a movie like this. And David is like, oh, I I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Like, it's the type of movie that if I was slipping through the channels and it was playing, I could turn it on and he wouldn't go, oh, like, I know you just like walk in the room and be like, watch it for 10 minutes before you moved on. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this is fine. All right. Well, the budget for this film, mm-hmm. oh, boy, was $58 million. Okay. Where did that money go? Uh, the locations. The locations. I guess. Yeah. And like, Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, I just there's a lot there's a lot in that budget for me that was just like really not to say that this movie feels cheap in any way. It feels like it feels fresh. It feels like a good update, but it feels like a thirty million dollar movie. Maybe there there's no notes on the budget here, but I was just like, what? That's weird to me. It's a lot, hmm. and that is part of the reason why it's not really considered a success because it only made fifty three million six hundred and seventy five thousand dollars this wasn't a big success no it goes way under the radar mm-hmm. and that's wild to me to think about but it was like yeah i guess that makes sense including the fact that julie ormond is a well-regarded actress but i don't know that a lot of people think of her as like a star at the time her star was very much rising mm-hmm. as we will get into so I don't know. I I feel like they blew the budget and that kind of sunk them on this one. Mm-hmm. Regardless, both our director and Harrison Ford are on record as loving this film. Aww. They think it's one of their best. It is. So I gotta give it to them. Yep. All right. Writing. Everybody from the original gets their credit. 
because it's based off of that original script. Sure. This is one of those where they didn't wholesale recreate something new. No, they took a lot from the original. And that's great. They just, they rewrote things for the timeliness for what would be more popular. Like I, like they could have made Sabrina go to France for cooking school, but you know, I like the fashion angle works the same. It's, it's a more creative thing. I think it actually works better with her then developing an interest in photography because I think it gave a better in for Linus to need to spend time with her. Yeah. A more natural reason. And I, th- I think that's really cool. Then we have, writing this update, Barbara Benedek, who wrote The Big Chill and did uncredited work on Pretty Woman, which we talked about. Ooh, okay. And David Rayfield, who before this wrote a lot of television. Mm-hmm. This property is condemned. Jeremiah Johnson, The Way We Were, Three Days of the Condor, The Electric Horseman, Absence of Malice, Out of Africa, Round Midnight, The Morning After, Havana, and The Firm. You will notice, if you are a Sidney Pollock fan, that a lot of those are Sidney Pollock movies. Mm. We'll get to that. A lot of these are uncredited roles, mm-hmm. but Raphael was a very close collaborator with a gentleman named Sidney Pollock. Mm-hmm. So, what do we think of the writing of this movie? It's fabulous. It's very good. This is a great example of how to update a remake of a movie. It's a very good example, too, of how to remake a film that already had such a substantially good script to begin with. You you don't lose any of the charm from the original movie. You just add to it and make it a little bit more relevant to today. You know, they and they did the thing of, okay, we're telling this story, but we want to do something new with it. Mm-hmm. So they did that. Yep. And they did the Billy Wilder thing of, because we're going to do it that new way, we're going to change portions of the story and the way the script works to make that work for the story we're going to tell now. Mm-hmm. And holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Lo and behold, it's so simple. And and again, I don't want to discount like auteurs who are really good at their craft sure. and who make really fascinating work. Like mm-hmm. there's always room for those storytellers. But there is something magical about people who just go, we have to figure out how to do this thing. What do we do? <laughs> and yeah. they nail it. I just love it. Oh, it's fabulous. That's so good. It's it's just it's so encouraging to watch because it just reminds everybody that's like, look, when you tell a story, if you just know what your story is and you just roll with that, mm-hmm. you're going to make something good. It might not be like widely regarded for the rest of the eternity, but it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. So great job by them. The Sabrina poem about a water sprite is an excerpt from a Milton poem called Comus. It's a big saga. The character in that poem is based on a Welsh tale about a princess named Sabrina that was thrown in a river that was the boundary of Wales and England. Mm. The water god Narius took pity on Sabrina and made her into a river goddess. Hence, she is the one saving them. Which, oh, what a great moment. Oh, like, oh, and she's, you know, she's, she's the virgin. She's no, the savior. she's the savior. It's great because it's so telling of both of them in that moment. And that isn't in the original no which is again that's just a lovely little detail that they added it's a beautiful line Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the fact that they smash cut right after that yep you're like whoa oh it's perfect perfect and sabrina's father tells linus her address in paris's 13 rue de beaux arts Mm -hmm. the address of l'hotel in paris this was the actual place where they filmed 
Linus coming to be Sabrina in the final scene. So yeah, they no. did go to fucking Paris and do all of that shit. I loves it. <laughs> I mean, I do love Umbrella on the cruise ship. It's pretty good. I do think the Umbrella on the cruise ship is a little sweeter. It's the visual, right? It's the difference between in that film, it's all the visual. And in this one, it is the interposing of the dialogue. Sure. That one is just slightly more romantic. Yeah, I think then than the one we get in the modern one, no less lovely and enjoyable. It's just not quite as, you know, big romantic gesture style, which. Yeah, but I, I think honestly, that works better for this version of the story. I, I, I don't disagree. It's just not in that romantic comedy, big romantic gesture vein. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Well, let's move on to our director. I already dropped this hint. It's Sidney fucking Pollock. Sidney fucking Pollock. We talked about him directing Tootsie. We talked about him kind of sort of directing, but also starring in Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Sidney Pollock's direction of this movie? That's great. Great. Again, Sidney Pollock, we, we talked about finding comps. Sidney Pollock is kind of a, a comparison to Billy Wilder. I don't, I'm not as familiar with right. his work. I'm just not. But I mean, you talk about things like Three Days of the Condor, political thriller, Out of Africa, romantic period piece, The Firm, Tootsie. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just not as familiar. Yeah. With those. No, I, I think, I think Pollock's actually a really good example of. Oh, weirdly, he was probably the perfect guy to remake this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> because he is very much that. Well, how am I going to do this? Yeah. Like, we talked about that with Tootsie. It was like, Tootsie is a story that could go off the rails in five seconds and nearly did because it had like 18 writers and Pollock was the reason it worked. So, I, it's good stuff. He's very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he first got the offer, he thought it was a joke. He thought Harrison Ford would be playing Sabrina is what they were telling him. <laughs> That's funny. So he's like, fuck you. I'm not doing this. Then when he found out it was real, he didn't want to do it. He thought the material would be too dated to work in a modern setting. Yeah. But once he did agree, he did actually secure Billy Wilder's blessing to make the film. Oh, that makes me happy. Wilder was was not gone at that time. So and I'm like, yeah, you're going to remake one of his most iconic films. Yeah, you better. Yeah, that's just those things make me happy. And knowing what we know now, he was probably also talking to Cameron Crowe because Cameron Crowe was shadowing Wilder for a while there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know, right? All right, let's talk about our cast. First off, I put his credits here. I'm not going to bother with it, although we haven't talked about him on the show yet. Harrison Ford. Harrison fucking Ford. As Linus Larrabee. He's perfect. Wow. And and this is where Bogart wasn't as good, is that Harrison Ford has just a natural charm as a person. Yes. He just does. He's really good at like that passive listening thing. And he can be really stern and grouchy, as is Harrison Ford's way. But when he's excited about things, you see it. And that's something that we get from his Linus. You can see how passionate he is about. You know, this TV that he's whacking. <laughs> like, he thinks it's really cool. He's very serious, and he can be very stern, 
but like you get the you get those different levels from him and then as we're seeing him with sabrina we see that soften more we see more of him relax and when they go out to dinner and they eat with their hands on the floor it's great like he's great because he's still very much linus but like you can see him like softening and it's great i loved him he's a sneaky versatile actor everybody thinks of him in a certain way and it's just like especially in the 90s he did a whole lot of different types of stuff yeah late 80s early 90s he was going in lots of different directions Mm -hmm. and it really you know right before this then he did patriot games and clear and present danger he went jack ryan (laughs) yeah throughout all of that he still had this ability to to bring a charm with a gravitas all at the same time and in this movie he gets to play a bunch of those levels which is not something they ask him to do a lot Mm -hmm. he's done it in a handful of movies but like rarely do they do that they're like be indiana jones you know be movie star and sometimes he's just like can i just act and that's what he gets to do in this movie he's just like i'm just gonna act and he does it really fucking well he's fantastic this is one of those like wow this is this blows me away this is one of those movies i hadn't seen him in and was like wow i love you even more as an actor right now Mm -hmm. Then we get Julia Ormond playing Sabrina Fairchild. Before this, she was in Nostradamus, Legends of the Fall, and First Night. After this, mm-hmm. she was in Resistance, Inland Empire, I Know Who Killed Me, Surveillance, Shea Part 1, Kit Kittredge, An American Girl, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Temple Grandin on TV, My Week with Maryland, Witches of Easton, Mad Men on TV, and most recently, The Walking Dead, World Beyond. Oh, I didn't know she was in that. Yeah, she was in like the spinoff of the spinoff or something. Legends of the Fall, First Night. There you go. She was she was like on the rise. Uh-huh. She's very good. She's not as iconic as Audrey. No, but there's no touching Audrey. No. So I like that like she's not doing an imitation. I think her Sabrina's very different. And I do like how much we got of her in Paris. I think Sabrina, who comes back from Paris in this film, is such a stronger woman than the Sabrina who comes back from Paris in the previous version. Oh, yeah. And I am going to say there is a a very clear decision to put her in pants for the majority of the film, except for Mm -hmm. when she's at the party. Yeah. Because she has to be in a, a beautiful dress for that. The rest of the film, she's in pants and beautiful, like, the Parisian style pants. And I think that that was a very purposeful choice. Yeah. In this movie too, again, because we're exploring the characters, we're exploring Linus a lot mm-hmm. more. One of the things you especially see from her is that she's very strong. Mm-hmm. She's not, you know, the doe eyed fairy tale ingenue. Yeah. So it takes a lot for her to f- finally get convinced of this fairy tale that Linus is offering. Yeah. And then him crush it right after. Like you see the whole time her being like, this isn't exactly right. And I don't know, it's Linus. That's not what I ever. And then it just like, you see her finally just go, okay, this is real. This is really going to happen. And yeah. then it's crushing <laughs> because she she's like, no, I was stronger than this. I am stronger than this. And then you see her finally realize maybe I'm not. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's so much more fascinating in a way to watch. And again, in the original, it's all about just Sabrina's world. And in this one, it's like it's just the real world. She does a really good job of, of bringing that to it. We have a lot of who could have been betters. Mm. Namely, 
The main choice was Winona Ryder. Oh, God, no. She was like, there is no way to fill Audrey Hepburn's shoes. I refuse. Good choice. That's the thing. Winona Ryder, I mean, I think in a certain world, she could have been very interesting, but I feel like she would have tried to do Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. And she knew better. Then we have Demi Moore. No. Gwyneth Paltrow. Maybe. Robin Wright. Yes. Cameron Diaz. Maybe. Sandra Bullock. Yes. Put Sandy in everything. Yes. Juliette Binoche. Julia Ormond lookalike. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> she's the actual French version of, yes. <laughs> of Julia Ormond. Uh-huh. Yeah. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm, no. And Julie Delpy. Maybe. Uh, Julie Delpy is too much of a model. She would be very cool as like the French friend she makes. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, mm, she she's almost too French feeling European in that way. Yeah. Than what Julia brings. I do like that we have a British person too. Yes, I do love that. She also brings a real subtlety to her accent. Mm-hmm. Like her accent is incredibly good. Sure. Because she is softening the British and bringing the American part of it in mm-hmm. for somebody who is from England, but was very clearly raised in America. Mm-hmm. And it works really well. And then finally, we have Greg Kinnear playing David Larrabee. Before this, from 1991 to 1994, he was the host of Talk Soup. Mm-hmm. Then he was in Blank Man. <laughs> After this, Dear God, as good as it gets, you've got mail. Mystery men, what planet are you from? Nurse Betty, loser, the gift, someone like you, we were soldiers. Autofocus, stuck on you, the matador, bad news bears, little miss sunshine, fast food nation, invincible, baby mama, ghost town, green zone, the Kennedys on television, the English teacher, anchorman two, heaven is for real, rake on TV, same kind of different as me, house of cards, the stand, and blackbird on TV. He's doing a ton of television now. Yes, I I watched him in blackbird and he was fabulous. What do we think of Greg Kinnear in this film? I adore him (laughs) so much. He is a perfect, perfect counterpart, like modern day counterpart to William Holden's David. He is so good. Because Holden wasn't, you know, the most magical, beautiful man in the world. No. He could be made up to look really pretty. Sure. So can Greg Kinnear. I mean, Greg Kinnear's just attractive. But he's also a doofus. He can be doofus. Yes. He can be silly, but he he plays the playboy so well. I mean, I'm sorry that like, David did a gap ad. <laughs> <laughs> I die. It's so funny. But I love I, I also really like the twist on his turn at the end. Mm-hmm. Not only does he force the confession out of Linus, mm-hmm. but he also reveals. I've been paying attention the whole fucking time. Like you've been CCing me on the company financials for the last 15 years. You just assumed I couldn't read, which is great. <laughs> like I, that's the other thing that I love in this script is when Sabrina tells Linus, you know, my father asked David why he stopped going to the office. And he said, what do they need me for? They've got Linus. And that is so telling about mm-hmm. both of those boys. And yes. that is a layer that we did not get from the other one. No. But it's like he wanted to be important and he does care. But as long as his brother is going to go the way he's going to go, it's not worth my time. Yeah. 
The original movie is playing solely in archetypes. Yes. Which is fine. It's totally. awesome. But this is playing very much in full characters. Yes. And for that reason, it's as good in a different way. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Who could have been better? Mm-hmm. The first choice was Tom Cruise. Not with Harrison Ford. Could be fun, though. Tom Cruise doing this shit? Give him, like, blonde streaks or something? No. I don't know. I could I could have fun with that one. But he did Mission Impossible instead, so who cares? Mm-hmm. That changed his entire career. It did. All right, let's move on to Arpons. Random people of note. There's a lot. Oh, yes, I know. Nancy Marchand playing Maude Larrabee. She was a longtime TV actress. She had a long run on Lou Grant and had a featured role in The Soprano. Oh, okay. John Wood playing Fairchild. He was Professor Falcon in War Games <laughs> and was in Chocolat. Richard Crenna playing Patrick Tyson. <laughs> the poor man's William Holden. He is so grouchy. I love it. He is probably best known for playing Colonel Troutman, who is Rambo's commander. Oh, okay. He was a character actor that was like a little bit later than William Holden. And it's funny. I think Crenna played David in like a radio or TV version of the of Sabrina at some point. Actually, I did know that because it's a fact that is listed in Phoebe's birthday song to Emma in Friends. <laughs> Ah, uh, Richard Crenna. Angie Dickinson playing Egret Tyson. She was the very original supermodel and former Miss America who starred in Rio Bravo, showed up in a lot of random roles and stuff. Mm-hmm. We have Lauren Holly playing Elizabeth Tyson. She is Mary from Dumb and Dumber, and she played Betty Cooper in Archie to Riverdale and Back Again, the 1990s TV movie. Oh, <laughs> Dana Ivey playing Mac. She's just one of those very recognizable actresses. We mentioned her as Miss Millie in The Color Purple. Mm, okay. Miriam Colon playing Rosa. She was a Puerto Rican actress who played Mama Montana in Scarface. Oh, okay. Fanny Ardant playing Irene. She is a well-known French star, very famous there, uh, who also starred in Elizabeth. Oh, okay. Valérie Lemercier playing Martine. She recently co-wrote, directed, and starred in Eline, a fictional film based on the life of Céline Dion. Okay. That's a big deal. Yeah. Becky Ann Baker playing Linda. She was Hannah's mom on Girls. Oh, yeah. Paul Giamatti playing Scott. He's Paul Giamatti. Yeah, you know who he is. <laughs> Again, in one of those early roles where it's like, what the fuck is he doing here? Margot Martindale playing the nurse. She's Margot fucking Martindale. Mm-hmm. Playing Carol, J. Smith Cameron. She plays Jerry Kelman in Succession. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. the shit on that show. <laughs> Carmen Chaplin playing Paris' friend. She's an actress who's been in a handful of films, but she is the granddaughter of Charles and Una Chaplin. Oh, okay. Ronald L. Schwery playing the Sheik in one of the offices. He was a longtime executive producer. He was one of the guys who shows up in the diner while Sidney Pollack as agent is talking to Tootsie. Oh, okay. And we mentioned him before because he's also one of the most prominent black producers in Hollywood. Mm, Okay. It's a little bit of not great stereotype casting, but Schwery as a dude seems like a very interesting guy. Mm. And finally, Phil Nee playing Father in Hospital. He was a longtime stand-up comic known as the godfather of Asian-American stand-ups. Awards. Awards? It was nominated for Best Original Score by 
John Williams. Mm. Which, there you go. Cool. And best original song for Moonlight. Oh, okay. I don't know what that song is. Maybe it was at the end of the credits. Whatever. I guess. <laughs> this movie could have gotten some acting nods, but whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't big enough. It didn't do well. Mm-mm. All right, trivia. Just a few pieces. Trivia. The age difference is a little bit lower in this film. Harrison Ford was 22 years older than Julia Ormond, as opposed to the 29-year difference between Bogie and Audrey Hepburn. Mm. While Sabrina waits in the Vogue lobby, a woman at a desk can be seen wearing the iconic black dress, pearl necklace, and updo from Audrey Hepburn's look in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Aww. Nice bit. The shots of the airplane landing and taking off were filmed at the Gulfstream Manufacturing Plant in Savannah, Georgia. The interior shots were filmed in a Gulfstream 5 mock-up used by the company to show customers what an interior would look like before they bought one. And the actual plane was a Gulfstream 4 that they used as a demo plane. You can very clearly see the Roman numeral 4 on the tail of the plane. Oh, okay. When Patrick Tyson says, Move first child, be a masculine child. Mrs. Tyson identifies the quote from Serpico. That line is from The Godfather. (laughs) That bit. Knowing that and then seeing it, I was like, oh, God, that's perfect. That's funny. And finally, among the pile of books in the Fairchild Cottage is Clear and Present Danger by Tom Clancy, Harrison Ford's previous film role. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's just set designer bits. That's good stuff. That's cute and silly. All right. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. Wow. Quick one for this. For this film, are we going to go with indestructible televisions? Uh, Sure. That works. So this is very much your movie. It is absolutely my movie. And I just, I, it's a five for me. Woo! I wouldn't, I really wouldn't change anything. I love the cast. I love the story. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And I, I like even watching it purposely to have like a critical eye of it. Like I just wouldn't change anything. Yeah, it's five. Oh, I got a five. What is their default here? I don't know. There's not a weak link. They expand upon the original in a great mm-hmm. way without doing anything to diminish the other one. Yeah. Nothing in this movie made me not appreciate the original in any way. It built up a different side of the story. I still feel shocked. I, I don't have anything to complain about. I don't know where I could find fault. And I'm like, I looked at it remembering, oh, God, it's a longer rung time. We got to watch an even longer thing of this. And I've already seen it. And that's always a little bit like, I don't know. It's just as good, if not better. Yep. Like, they kept everything great about the original, and then they took it in a new direction that worked really well for a new audience. It's a shame that this movie isn't better regarded. I agree. But, you know, sequels and whatnot. Find this movie. Watch it. It's great. It's really good. Watch both. Let's be honest. Both are worth it. They really are. Live your life. Live your life. And speaking of living your life... And living in your fantasies. Mm. Next week, we are going to talk about a movie that the more I think about it, the more concerned I am. Oh, no. Uh, but also, I think we will get a lot of good laughs out of. Oh, okay. We are watching Broadway Sensation turned into Billy Wilder movie, The Seven Year Itch. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about this story? I mean, it's a Marilyn Monroe movie. <laughs> like, that's, what I, that's what I know. Uh, interesting. Interesting. I have seen this movie before. Okay. And now, look, 
I know this movie is slapstick. I know this movie has fun bits. I'm a little concerned about the storyline, but we're going to have to wait and see. Okay. But before we go, we have some new movies to talk about. New movies. All right. New movies. First, we saw The Black Phone. After being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. Mm. Uh, yeah, this is when we that like kept getting pushed back because of the pandemic, and then we just didn't get to see it in the theater with our summer. But then it came out on Peacock, so we're like, yes, yay, let's go watch it. Uh, Ethan Hawke as a villain? Yes, I'm here for it. I really like this movie. A friend of mine and I, we've been on like a horror film sprint. I have been watching a ton, ton of horror films. (laughs) And so we're like, yes, we got to watch this one. And this one was so, so good. I really like the concept. They tie it up really well. The only drawback for me truly was that there was some unnecessary parental abuse shown in the film. And they could have like faded to black instead of showing it to us or had the character like it's just kind of implied that he is abusive instead we have to see some of it and that is that was just really unnecessary it didn't add anything to the story so i don't want it yeah there were the movie's a little mushy especially with its secondary characters its primaries you know our lead actor the sort of sidekick role and Mm -hmm. our bad guy are all fantastically drawn out characters right everybody else is a little bit mushy I mean, that's okay because honestly, they're barely in the movie. Uh, Yes, but even then you can still you can still really define them. You don't have to like spend a whole lot of time doing it, but you can really define those characters. They they could have done a better job with that, but it's a tight movie. It's like an hour. It's an hour and a half. They get in. They show you the problem. They get out. Please. Always. I mean, you got it. Like we've we've watched some epic films (laughs) like we are. We are. We have reached the point where if your film, because you want to share all this information, you want to add all this depth and color and situation, your film needs to be a miniseries. It doesn't get to be five hours. I'm talking to you, Scorsese. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Some directors can do it. Some can, but it's and- rare. And it's really rare now in the age where we have television limited series as such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming way more the norm that like, you know what? The story... I think it could be way more entertaining and interesting if we made it, you know, a six episode miniseries and just called it a day. Cool. Great. Do it. There's a handful of people. If David Fincher made a four hour movie, I would watch it and I would probably love every minute. Of it. I, I mean, it's would. true because he's also very disciplined and he the dude can cut a movie. Yeah. Regardless. <laughs> Regardless. This this film is great. I really liked it, except for that one like content warning. Yeah. Um, the sister is amazing she has one of my favorite things that me and my friend keep repeating to each other because it's that good next we saw bullet train five assassins aboard a fast-moving bullet train find out that their missions have something in common i fucking love this movie holy god this movie's amazing this is my new john wick not that you can replace john wick john wick's john wick but in that i want a movie where someone kicks ass and it's also kind of funny that's this movie Oh my god, the jokes. The and jokes. and not just not just, you know, bits, right? Not sure. just action comedy bits. It they all set pays up jokes off. that don't pay off until the end of the fucking movie. No. 
It's incredible. My favorite thing about the experience of going to see this we saw it at the Alamo Draft House, which if you've ever been there, they do a pre-show. And sometimes it's very specifically curated to the film. Sometimes it's a little more generic to the genre, to the actor, whatever. Cool. So we go to this one and I was like, they don't have something about Thomas the Train. I'm going to be pissed because that's a missed opportunity. Let's let me just tell you, watch this movie. I was thoroughly pleased. Thoroughly <laughs> pleased. Everybody's doing a great job. Bullet train. Bullet train. Go see it. Bye. <laughs> Next, we saw bodies, bodies, bodies. When a group of rich 20-somethings plan a hurricane party at a remote family mansion, a party game turns deadly in this fresh and funny look at backstabbing fake friends and one party gone very, very wrong. This movie could have been so good. And it's not. Don't see it. Oh, I wouldn't say that. It's I, I, This was a waste of my time. I don't think it was a waste of time. I think it... Here's the thing about a movie like this. You need to very clearly define your characters. Mm -hmm. And rather than the script and the movie defining the characters, the actors defined how strong the characters were going to be. Mm -hmm. The strength of the actors involved dictated the strength of the character, which is never a great sign. Also, I was expecting like scream level dialogue for this because this is a satire. Yeah. And we didn't get it. No, and that's part of like, I really, okay, trailer person, you did your job because it made me want to see the film. I was like, I'm here for this. I want to see this. Film didn't live up to the trailer. I understand why there's a ton of people who really love this movie and I totally get it. And I, I'm like, I see I see all of that potential within it yeah. from what I saw. To me, there's just a lot of problems that outweigh it, that it's it's not that great a movie, but I wouldn't call it trash. Mm-hmm. If you If you like horror comedies, you might be into this one. I'm not, I'm not going to go that far. Mm. Next, we saw Elvis. The life of American music icon Elvis Presley. From his childhood to becoming a rock and movie star in the 1950s, while maintaining a complex relationship with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. What the fuck is this movie? <laughs> I, I, I think in the first... Okay, so this is another one of those that were like, oh, we know we're going to need to see this. It's a big, like, epic. It's going to be up for a lot of awards. Except I knew, I knew I didn't want to have to watch this. So we're like, it's also three hours long. So, like, we're just going to have to, like, suck it up. And then, again, summer happened. COVID happened to us. Yeah, and then it landed on HBO. We're like, all right, there's no excuse. We got to watch it now. I still didn't want to. I was no. going to wait for this one to get nominated. No, and I said, well... You can watch it now with me because David doesn't watch things on his own. I don't. Or when it gets nominated, you can watch it by yourself in pain. (laughs) And I still complained about it the whole time. Well, but also when we started watching it, we both kept going, what the fuck is this movie? What is happening? There's animation. Then there's sad Tom Hanks in a fat suit giving monologues in fantasy land. It's like, what the fuck is happening? The movie is not good as a movie. It is not. It is fucking gorgeous because it's a Baz Luhrmann film. The dude don't make ugly shit. Okay. That's just a fact. I would disagree, but go on. I think it's gorgeous. I think this movie actually looks better than Moulin Rouge. I know someone will try to murder me for that. I don't care. Moulin Rouge is trash. Austin Butler makes the entire movie, but we still got a long ways to go, but he, he will get start getting nominated for this stuff. And it's deserved. He did the work. He did a fabulous job. There were actually a few moments where like Uncanny Valley, Uncanny Valley, because it was creepy how much he looked like him. And that is actually him singing, which is also nuts. But the rest of it, no. Tom Hanks, love you. 
you're 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 my favorite tv person no <laughs> you should never have been cast in this ever no this this movie's not gorgeous to me because it's not actually telling it's not telling an accurate story at all because elvis was way more fucking complicated than this well okay I, again this isn't like a true biopic which is fine and this he's the type of person that you have to decide what type of story are you telling are we gonna are we telling an origin story are we telling a life story are we tell? are we gonna tell a story that's just about the struggles like what are you gonna do because he's such a big person and he had such an insane life but the problem is at no point did baz lerman decide which movie he was making <laughs> Well, no, because he's Baz fucking Lerman and he never does. And that has worked precisely one time when he told Shakespeare. <laughs> I don't know. You haven't, you haven't seen Strictly Ballroom. You haven't seen Strictly Ballroom. Whatever. Before. The only good thing about this movie is Austin is Butler. Austin Butler. I, and that's fine. And all the time I was sitting there wondering, why can't Austin Butler be in an actually good movie about Elvis? Because that's when the movie got cast in. That's fine. I don't I don't like it. I hate it when we mess with music history. I love music history. I hate this shit. <laughs> well, my biggest problem is it seemed like they wanted to tr- like they wanted to whole film about the myth of Elvis and like his gravitas, which is cool. That's cool. Then they also wanted to talk about the conflict with who Colonel Tom Parker was, which is also a very interesting story because he made Elvis who he was to a degree. He made him the big spectacle, but he was also like a straight up crook. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> but they didn't. You can't do both of those in the same film. No. And then that's and then like I remember you said like well you know like he was on way more drugs than this. And I was like, well, that's not the story we're telling. But then they tried to tell part of that story, and it's like, what the fuck? It, it's so funny because they're like, well, Tom Parker got him on drugs in like 1972, and it's like, oh, he, he was, was doing fucking then. speed from the day one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's going to get the production, the costume, the makeup. It will. Nomination, which the makeup for Tom Hanks's character, no. But the makeup that they did for Austin Butler, yes. Yeah. Because they made him look spot on in a way that he's not wearing prosthetics until he's playing the much older and heavier Elvis. Oh, I mean, and, and they play it perfectly throughout so well. the timeline. Yeah, there's... Uh, I will agree with you. The actual visual work. But to me, I don't want to give credit to Baz for that because I don't feel like Baz has any cohesive idea here. I think it's just no, the, like the creative team does a great job. Of sure, no, no, like moments. the production, the production aspects yeah. top fucking notch. They are great. They and they deserve that recognition because it is gorgeous and it serves the purpose and the time. To me, the thing is Elvis's story is compelling enough mm-hmm. without you having to add the myth on top of it. His story, his actual story, is that bonkers. They were trying to tell too many different versions of his story. Exactly. Which just is the problem. <laughs> just tell one. Pick one. It's just, yeah. It's, it's a it's, bad movie. It's a bad it's movie. Not, it's going to get nominated, so you're going to have to watch it. It's not the worst movie. It's not the worst movie. Next, I watched a movie because I was very curious about it, and that movie is Vengeance. A writer from New York City attempts to solve the murder of a girl he hooked up with and travels down south to investigate the circumstances of her death and discover what happened to her. This is BJ Novick's movie and his directorial debut. Um, it's already on Peacock. It's already on DVD and Blu-ray and all that. I just wanted to see it because I just really like BJ Novick as a writer. I just like hearing interviews and I think he's just an interesting person. 
so I didn't really know anything about this movie. And so I went into it and I was like, this movie is not what anybody thinks of it is. It is. It's a really interesting view of like podcast culture, which clearly we are a part of, but also just entertainment and creative culture while also like really looking at Texas, like the South and it's all through Texas. And as Texans, as native Texans, like all of that stuff made sense to us. And it's like, yeah, this is all true. Like he got all of this stuff right. Um, so it's it's a really good movie. It's all, I don't think it's very long either. I think it's like right at like 145. I don't think it's going to be a big awards contender. I would love to see this movie get like a writing nomination, but it's not going to get any like actory shit or anything like that. But I would I would love to see it get nominated for like a Golden Globe or Critics' Choice thing. Yeah. Okay, fine. I'll watch it. I you'll really like it. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.